The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast, bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. In particular, tonight's episode includes scenes of violence involving animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Well... Hello there, and welcome to Season 10 of Horror Hill. If you're just joining us for the first time, I'm your host and narrator, Eric Peabody. We cover a variety of short horror fiction here, from the weird to the whimsical, the cheeky to the craven, but with an emphasis on material that might be a bit more... vicious. All caught up? Good. Then let's jump into tonight's story. That story is The Dark Book by Micah Edwards. The setup for this tale is a familiar one. A new homeowner finds something unexpected in the attic. This sets our protagonist on a path of temptation and occult evil, but will he be able to resist its charms, or will he lose himself in the shadow of a greater power? You're listening to the standard edition of this program, If you'd like to help support Horror Hill and also remove these pesky ads, head to ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. You'll get instant access to hundreds of ad-free stories, and we can scale back some of our uh, less savory means of generating money for the show. By the way, you wouldn't happen to still have all of your organs, would you? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. And now, from author Micah Edwards, I give you The Dark Book. Last year, I bought a house. It was about as bland and suburban a house as you can imagine. I mean, I like it fine, but it's a cookie-cutter house from the mid-90s. It's got vinyl siding and an inoffensive shade of blue. The family that lived here before was an older couple who were starting to have trouble with the stairs, and they'd been in the house since it was built. The husband had a model train set, and the wife collected decorative spoons. They had pictures of their grandchildren up on the walls. You cannot possibly picture a less haunted house. I'm making that point to explain why, when I found a weird box in the attic last week, that it never occurred to me to wonder where it came from. You know those military ammo cans, the metal things with one big latch on the side? It was one of those. It definitely wasn't mine. I don't even own a gun. I figured it must have belonged to the previous owners, and they'd missed packing it up when they moved out. It was pretty well hidden, tucked way back in a corner of the attic where the roof slopes down to meet the floor. I never would have found it myself, except that I heard a squirrel or possum or something scratching around on the roof, and I came upstairs with a flashlight to make sure that it hadn't gotten inside. I was poking around in all the crevices of the attic with my light, and that's when I caught a glint off of the metal of the box. Who doesn't love a good mystery, right? I pulled the box out of the corner and turned it over in the light. It was black and almost completely featureless, nothing but the big latch holding it closed on one side and a stamp in the metal on the bottom. It was an image of three intersecting rings, like an evenly spaced Venn diagram. I looked the picture up later, and apparently, they're called Boromian rings. They've been used to represent everything from religion to beer, neither of which seemed likely to be inside my mystery box. I tried the latch, but either I was trying to open it the wrong way or it was rusted shut or something. Whatever the case, it wouldn't budge, so I brought the case back downstairs with me and fiddled with it a bit more in better lighting. Still, no dice though. The latch just wouldn't budge. After a while, I got frustrated with it and left it on the kitchen table to deal with later. I live alone, so if I want to dump ammo boxes on the table, I can. It's one of the perks. I can also attempt to chisel those same ammo boxes open at the kitchen table, which is what I ended up doing the next morning. Turns out, those things are built pretty well, so my first few hits did nothing. As I was setting the chisel for my fifth or sixth hit, though, it skidded sideways on the box and I sliced into the side of my hand with the edge. You know the webbing in between your thumb and forefinger? Got myself right there. A nice little nick. It started bleeding immediately, and I hopped up and ran over to the sink to wash it out and disinfect it. I don't know what diseases you can get from things that have been collecting dust in an attic, and I don't want to know. Funny thing is, when I came back to the table, the latch was open. It must have popped it with the chisel as I was setting it that last time or something. Maybe that's why it skidded in the first place. Anyway, the box was unlatched, and it opened and closed easily when I tried it. No squeaking or stiffness in the hinges or anything. I even tried relatching it, and it worked just fine. I took out the contents before I latched it again, just in case it did get stuck. Here's what was inside. A thin, hardback book bound in black leather and tied with a black silk ribbon two bronze rings wrapped up in a black silk cloth, a six-inch-long steel needle, a tiny jar, the size they put lip gloss in, full of some sort of putty, and a slip of paper with a string of numbers. 
The paper was on top of everything else, so it was the first thing I saw. It was handwritten, and it said, 0502-2018-1537-42-0155-93-34-51-38-0. The other side was blank. I held it up to the light in case there was something else hidden there, but couldn't make out any watermark or hidden text. So, the first three numbers were obviously a date, May 2nd, and that meant that the fourth number was probably a time. The rest of it took me a little while to figure out, but the negative finally clued me in. The next six numbers are coordinates, latitude and longitude. When I plugged them into Google Maps, I got a shock. Displayed on the screen was my house. I laughed about it a second later. I mean, I found this in my attic. It's not surprising that it's got my latitude and longitude on it. Whoever put it there obviously knew where they were. It's a weird thing to do, but not difficult. Incidentally, I changed the coordinates here so that they point somewhere in Iowa now. I don't want anyone reading this to know precisely where I live. No offense. The last two numbers didn't make any sense to me at all. I puzzled over them for a few days, tried all sorts of possibilities. Height above sea level? Percent change of property value? Length of text? But came up blank on all of them. So I left the slip of paper by the computer and basically forgot about it for a little while. The other items didn't make any more sense. The needle was exactly what you'd expect a needle to be. Pointy at one end, small hole at the other. It stuck to a magnet and put a hole through a piece of paper. Nothing unusual happened in either case. The rings fit perfectly on my thumbs, which means they must have been made for a really big guy. They're too big for most people to wear on any of their fingers, unless they were designed as thumb rings, which is a pretty weird fashion statement. And even so, I'm above average height, so I think they'd be loose on most people's thumbs. The jar was weird. The putty in it was flesh-toned and very stretchy. I couldn't manage to pull it free of the jar or break a piece off. I got scissors to try to cut a piece free, but they sank partway in and got stuck. It took me almost a minute to get them out again afterward, and the putty showed no lasting marks once the scissors were gone. I crammed it back into its jar and closed the lid. But it wasn't until I got to the book that I really started to get creeped out. It was maybe a hundred pages long, with those Baromian rings stamped into the leather of the cover. The pages were all made of some sort of heavy, linen-feeling paper, and every page was covered in symbols in heavy black ink. Occasionally, there were diagrams, circles with intersecting lines and the like. Every few pages had a few larger symbols at the top, like a title. I couldn't read it, obviously. I don't even think it's a language. But you know how sometimes you'll hear a song on the radio that you haven't heard in years, maybe even decades? And if someone had asked you if you knew the words, you'd have said no, maybe even said you didn't know the song. But as soon as you hear it, you know the words. Not ahead of time, but if you open your mouth and sing along, they just come flowing out. Reading this book was like that. I didn't know what it said or even how to pronounce it. But I was certain that if I opened my mouth and started talking, I'd be saying it correctly, right along with the text. I didn't do that, mind you. I was too unsettled by the feeling. I tied it back up with its ribbon and put it back in the box with everything else. I put the can back up in the attic, and I planned to leave it there. That was early last week. On Friday, toward the end of the day, my boss asked me to come into his office. Seems they didn't need my services anymore, and while I could certainly count on them for a good reference, if I could have my desk cleared out by the end of the day, that would probably be best for everyone. Nice, right? Not even two weeks' notice. I've got a bit of money saved up, but not much, 
so I was going to have to find a new job fast. I took the weekend off to mope and feel sorry for myself, but on Monday I was hitting the digital bricks, spent the morning cleaning up my online profile, polishing my resume, and submitting to any job that looked promising. By early afternoon, I was starting to get a little cross-eyed, and my attention was wandering. I was thinking about going outside, so I opened up a weather website to see what it was like outdoors. 38 degrees, 46% humidity. Not bad for a February stroll. I stood up to get my jacket, but as I did, my eye fell upon the slip of paper still next to my keyboard. I'd left it out when I put everything else back in the box. Those last two numbers leapt out at me. 38 46. 38 degrees, 46% humidity. I checked the clock. It was 3.37 p.m. I got a chill down my spine. That slip of paper, 0502-2018-1537-4201-55-93-34-51-38-46 was essentially saying... On this date and time, at these coordinates, the temperature and humidity will be this. They'd gotten everything right except for the date. And then I realized that in the British style, that was how you wrote February 5th. It was completely correct and somehow predicted not only the specific details, but also precisely when I would notice them. This probably should have terrified me. It was completely impossible, after all, and I definitely was shaken. But then I thought about the book and the things I'd half-known flipping through it. I'd caught a few of the titles, their meanings anyway. Wealth. Sight. Harm. Fetch. No. I stood there, thinking, for fifteen minutes or more. Finally, almost... Reluctantly, I went upstairs, opened the attic, and brought that box back down. The latch opened easily this time, even eagerly. Everything sat inside just as I'd left it. I took the book back out and, with a frisson of fear, untied its ribbon again. I sat down on my couch and read silently, the strange symbols converting into words in my brain. It was a book of power, of spells. If it could do what it promised, I'd never work again in my life. Remote viewing, predicting the future, material transmutation, all this and more. Page after page detailing the necessary ritual, the preparations, the words. When I turned the final page and looked back up from the book, it was dark as in, past midnight. I looked back down at the book in my hands and could barely even make its shape in the dark room. But when I flipped through the pages, I could still read the symbols as clearly as ever. This chant to become undetectable. That ceremony to extend my lifespan. And through it all, a drumbeat. Wealth. Power. Life. I knew how to make the book work for me. I took the steel needle and pierced my left index finger with it. When the blood welled up, I touched the swollen drop to the rightmost of the interlocking rings on the cover. The blood flowed swiftly around it, staining that circle red. It represents my art, my commitment, and enters me into a pact with the book. 24 hours to let the blood set, and we'll be linked. I do not yet know what the other two circles represent. I'm eager to find out. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. 
Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So finding the perfect place is easier than ever. And so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom, and you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together, but you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them, because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the Internet so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com, the place to find a pet-friendly place. I spent yesterday making preparations. I wasn't about to just start chanting out the first page that seemed interesting. I decided to start small, simple, do something little and see if there were hidden costs, things I didn't know. It's no good wishing someone dead and then finding out that the spell exacts an equal cost from the caster or anything like that. I'm not saying that I'd wish anyone dead anyway. It was just an example. But I am still pretty ticked at my boss, so it's not off the table. <laughs> just a joke. I settled on wealth. It seemed most relevant. Plus, the book kept falling open to that page when I laid it flat. That seemed like a good sign to me. Also, it looked fairly simple to perform. I wasn't totally sure of that, because reading along in my head wasn't the easiest thing in the world. After the first read-through, I started to get a headache pretty quickly. It was like the words wanted to be said, and keeping them in was causing a physical pressure behind my eyes so it was tough to check to see if I'd missed anything. The premise was fairly simple, though. Attune the rings, pass the silk cloth through them, then receive wealth. I didn't exactly know how to attune the rings, but my left hand throbbed when I read those symbols, so I figured it would be like the words. I would be able to follow along as I did it, like the muscle memory of a long-forgotten action. My plan was to go to sleep early, get a good night's rest, and try this out in the morning. But when I opened my eyes, it was still pitch black in my room. My phone told me it was 12.41 a.m., but I felt as though I'd gotten a complete night's rest. I didn't feel nervous, afraid, or overly energized. Just alert. In what probably wasn't a coincidence, it was at precisely this time last night that I pressed my bloody finger to the book, bonding us. I thought about going to sleep, but it seemed foolish. I was awake now, after all. Why lie around in the dark and torment myself pretending to sleep when I could try out the book now? I got up, got dressed, and retrieved the book from my bedside table. Sitting cross-legged on the floor, I began. Actually saying the words out loud was a tremendous relief. It felt like when your eardrums pop for the first time after a week-long cold, and everything suddenly sounds and feels so much clearer. The first dark, rolling syllable broke the dam, and the rest of the ritual flooded out behind it. I began with the rings clasped in my right hand. I held them high, still speaking the ancient language aloud, and felt the power tingle down my arm. With my left hand, I picked up the needle, grasping it in my fist. I pressed my thumb onto its point, and the feeling as it pricked my skin was almost erotic. 
I pressed my thumb into my other fist and squeezed it, feeling the blood flow freely. When I drew it forth again, the blood was gone, and one of the bronze rings was encircling the second joint. I drew the ring back off of my thumb with my right hand and held both rings between thumb and forefinger. Taking up the black silk handkerchief in which the rings had been wrapped, I drew it through the two rings, pulling my blood-bound ring away with the end of the cloth as it went. My chanting deepened, slowed, and grew more resonant as the cloth was pulled through. When only the very last bit of cloth had yet to pass through the ring, it caught for a split second, as if snagged on a nail. Then, just as I spoke the final word of the ritual, the cloth pulled free and dropped to the floor. It did not flutter and dangle as silk should, but plummeted like a brick. Curious, I picked it up, and a small bank-wrapped bundle of hundred-dollar bills tumbled out. I counted fifty bills, a number confirmed by the $5,000 band encircling them. I stared at the money, unbelieving. $5,000? Just like that? Quickly, I repeated the ritual. What was a drop or two of blood compared to $5,000? For the cost of a shaving cut, I could get a year's salary. My hands shook with excitement, but as soon as I spoke the first symbol aloud, a deep calm settled over me. I felt no excitement, no fear, no anticipation. Only focus. This time, at the conclusion, the cloth fell away from my hands in a musical jangle. Coins rolled free, mainly pennies and quarters. I lifted it to see a pile of change, probably no more than ten dollars worth. Still not a bad exchange rate, but nowhere near what I'd previously achieved. I tried a third time, and this time produced a man's wallet. It had just under $100 in cash, several credit cards, and a driver's license announcing that it belonged to Lazar Yordanov, a resident of New York City. It was then that I realized the obvious truth. This money was not being created. It was being taken, seemingly at random. I had been lucky on my first pull, but there was no guarantee of that level of success ever again. Unless... There was some way to attune the other ring as well. The spell had said nothing about it, but possibly it was mentioned somewhere else in the book. I leafed through, allowing the headers to echo in my mind. Reward. Adroit. Malign. No. That one had caught my eye before, and it seemed likely to help in this situation. I started to scan it but my headache rapidly worsened as the words began to mob my mind. Throwing caution to the wind, I opened my mouth and intoned the words as my eyes passed over them. My hands moved of their own volition, twisting the black silk cloth into a narrow band. I raised it to my head as I chanted and wrapped it around my eyes, obscuring my vision of everything but the text. The black letters of that ancient language floated before me, darker than the blackness itself. I tied the blindfold behind my head and allowed myself to relax. Suddenly, I remembered a day spent by a pond in an ornamental garden years previous. I had met a man there, a soft-spoken man in a gray suit. I had been watching the fish dart around in the pool, small silver arrows the size of my hand. He had seated himself beside me at the pond's bank. He had been carrying a black fish in a plastic bag. What will you give me for this? He had said. Release it with the others, I had told him. It's not my pond. He had laughed, a rich, liquid sound. I cannot simply release it. Balance must be maintained. Will you not choose? I had looked at the darting fish then. They all look the same to me. Then, the man had said, standing and striding into the pond, water and mud staining the legs of his gray suit, you will not miss 
this one. He had darted his hand into the water and seized a fish. It had struggled in his grasp, flailing in the air, desperate to return to the pond. But I had only shrugged in response, and the man had opened his mouth, revealing a flash of sharp white teeth, and swallowed the fish whole. Enjoy, he had told me, releasing the small black fish from its bag. It had immediately joined the others in their darting schools, and I had watched them until the sun set that day. I opened my eyes again to darkness and the feel of cloth. I untied the blindfold, wondering why I had remembered that day in the park. I thought about the fish and realized that I knew how to attune the other ring. It was currently untuned, but I could focus it on a specific person or direct it to find wealth attached to no person at all. This was not new knowledge. I had always known this. Strange that it had taken a ritual to remind me of such a basic thing. Then I thought again about my day in the park. A park I could not place outside of one specific memory. And I wondered what the man had taken from me in exchange. I made two unpleasant discoveries yesterday. The first came after I had attuned the opposition ring and used wealth to draw forth unclaimed riches. I had to squint against the sun to see the strange tarnished coins I had produced, but surely it couldn't have been later than one or two in the morning. I had awoken at 12.41am after all and invoked the ritual only four times. I would have sworn that it had taken no longer than five minutes each time. My phone confirmed what I was seeing, though. It was past seven o'clock in the morning. Those four castings, plus the memory of the no, had taken over six hours to complete, and I was ravenous. I took the book downstairs to breakfast and read the spell again silently, fighting the headache it produced. No symbol indicated anything about the time. Like tuning the ring, this was something I was supposed to already know. The only cost it spoke of was the drop of blood. Still, if I could work eight hours a day in an office for a paycheck, surely I could give away some of my time here as well. It bothered me that I didn't seem to have used the time, that it simply seemed to be missing. But I told myself that, in the end... It didn't matter much where it had gone. I did consider the possibility that I had been in some sort of a blackout state and had, unbeknownst to myself, obtained the wealth through more direct means during those missing hours. However, nothing indicated that I had left my house during that period. I was still barefoot, my doors were still locked, and my car's odometer had not changed. The time, it seemed, truly had just vanished. The second unpleasant discovery came when I walked into my bathroom. I had gone to bed the previous night a healthy man in my early forties. The face looking back at me from the mirror was that of a much older man. My wrinkles had deepened into shadowed lines. My hairline had receded, and much of the hair had turned gray. My eyes had deep purplish bags under them, and my skin appeared slightly yellowed. I recoiled from this stranger in my bathroom, only realizing after the initial shock that it was my reflection. I prodded my face, confirming what the mirror showed. The skin felt both rubbery and flaky, an unpleasant combination. I snarled at the book, cursing it for doing this to me. The drops of blood I had provided had been only symbolic of the actual cost of the spells, I'd been squandering my life for petty monetary rewards. Even as I swore, though, a symbol in the book's forgotten language appeared in my mind. It whispered its name to me. Siphon. I knew what it meant and what it would do. The book begged me to read it aloud, to step outside and take the first convenient subject but I recognized the trap. 
steal a neighbor's pet, and then what? Be seen, be caught, be forced to turn to the book for more protection. Overlook, erase, evade, define, each one costing me more of my life, perpetuating the cycle. No, I was no fool. I would plan this. This would be on my terms. I went to the pet store. There was a low-walled glass box full of puppies, squirming bundles of fur no larger than my hand. They raced up when I approached their pen, tumbling over each other in their eagerness to see me, to be touched. Adorable, innocent, and young, each one likely to live for a decade or more. Ten to fifteen years, there for the taking. I couldn't do it. I bought a feeder mouse, one meant to be given to a snake for a meal. Even so, I tried not to look at it as the store attendant lifted it from its cage, then trapped it in a cardboard box for me to take home. I went back to the attic this time, clearing a spot on the bare wooden floor. Following the diagram in the book, I drew a circle large enough to sit in, then another larger one around it. I connected them with intertwining lines, making certain areas with the symbols shown in the book and partway through, I no longer had to consult the book. The circle simply made sense, each line demanding the next, and it was obvious what to write where. It took no more than two minutes to draw in all of its complexity. I checked my phone afterward to confirm that I had not lost time here. I seated myself inside the circle and opened the book to siphon. Heart pounding, I put my hand into the cardboard box and pulled out the terrified mouse. It twisted in my grip, biting my thumb, but the blood it drew was required for the ritual in any case. I opened my mouth and the words began to flow forth. As before, my body calmed as the ancient language took over. My heart slowed, my thumb ceased to hurt from the bite. I held the mouse outward over the top of the circle and cut into its belly with the sharpest knife from my kitchen. It squeaked in pain and fear, but my hands moved automatically, carrying out the required gestures. I flayed open its chest, cracked its ribs, and gently pried free its tiny heart, still attached and beating. With a final word and a single swift stroke, I severed the organ from its moorings, and with one last spasm, the mouse went still. My heartbeat sped up again, sounding loud in my ears as I looked at the dead mouse in my hands. As I watched, it collapsed rapidly inward, desiccating and fading away in my grip. The skin shrunk tight over the bones, then tore and crumbled off, the eyes rotted away in mere seconds. In less than a minute, I was holding nothing but a handful of fragile, dry bones. I felt no different. My skin still had that rubbery, flaky texture, and my hands did not seem any less aged. Taking up my phone, I looked into the camera and confirmed my suspicion. I looked no younger. If anything, I looked slightly worse. The mouse's meager years had done nothing. I thought again about the puppies, the fifteen years each one could provide. I steeled myself to return to the pet store. A thought assailed me. Short though the mouse's lifespan may have been, it should have done something. This had done nothing, or less than nothing. Before I tried again, I had to know if I'd done something wrong, and I knew how to be sure. I left the bones in the attic and went downstairs to retrieve the black cloth. The words to know were fresh in my mind, still glowing darker on dark when I tied the blindfold. As before, I remembered a day in the ornamental garden, this time fishing beside the man in the gray suit. 
My hook was unbaited, and I believed that his was as well. We had been there to relax. I had been surprised when his line dipped and he reeled in a struggling carp. The balance must be maintained, he had told me, opening a container at his side and drawing forth another black fish. With an underhand throw, he had lobbed it into the lake. Best when they're fresh, he'd told me, biting into the fish in his hand. It had flopped back and forth, coating his chin with silvery scales. I had turned away, revolted and disturbed in a way I could not quite describe. I took off the blindfold, scowling. The conversion was not one-to-one. Siphon took years from the target, but gave months in return, and the blood required to power it represented a year of my own life. I had lost another ten months or more on the mouse. I thought once more of the puppies. Even if I slaughtered the entire pen, I would get no more than a year back, maybe two. I needed something larger, something longer lived. I knew what I had to do, and somehow the decision was easier than it had been with a puppy. Back to the attic, and opening the book to a spell I knew was there. Fetch. The rings on my thumbs already attuned, one blood-bound to me, the other set to find things unattended, unwanted, unregarded. Hands clasped, I began to speak the words. As I spoke, I drew my palms apart, steadily widening them. The space in between shivered and bent, and when I had them far enough apart to hold a basketball, it twisted in on itself, and suddenly my hands were on the shoulders of a small child clad in rags. Indian, I think, though I could be wrong. Probably a boy. I did not ask. The child looked up at me in confusion and alarm, and I snatched up my knife and struck. Not to kill, for the spell could only take years remaining. It had to be alive for this. But I'm not cruel, and I didn't want it to suffer. My first cuts were an invocation of sorts, a word of power in that ancient language. Still, I wrote on its chest and the child went immobile. I picked it up, marveling at how little it weighed, and carried it to the circle, stepping carefully inside. I placed it at the top of the circle and gently closed its eyes so that it would not have to watch this. I think I saw a tear gathered in the corner of one eye, though that may simply be a guilty conscience. Certainly, that tear never fell. Siphon flowed through me, through my tongue and my knife, and soon I held the child's heart in my hand. As I cut it free, I felt power and life flow into me. My eyes snapped shut and my back arched with the intensity of the sensation. It lasted only seconds, but I felt rejuvenated. I opened my eyes again to see a collection of bones scattered over my circle marring the lines. If I was to do this again, I would need to create something more permanent. My phone showed me a much kinder image this time, still older than yesterday, but much improved from this morning. I smiled as I touched my face, feeling more supple skin and less prominent wrinkles. I ate heartily at dinner, though I wondered if I should feel so good. Was I... A monster? The child was unwanted, belonged to no one. It had probably been taken from the streets. The seventy years I had taken from it were a theoretical maximum. In its environment, probably it would not have even lived to be a teenager. Is it so wrong to take that which will only be thrown away and put it to good use? I think it is not. It's simply a good use of resources. And there are so many more out there. 
Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. I robbed a bank over the weekend. The wealth trick was time-consuming and yielded uncertain results. The corner of my attic had begun to look like a dragon's hoard. Strange coins, jewels, and artifacts swept haphazardly together. The coins I could at least take to a store that would exchange cash for gold, but what was I supposed to do with a silver cup with embedded sapphires? I could pry the stones out, but then what? Do jewelers buy from random men on the street? Also, I was having to fetch two or three orphans a day just to fuel the years I was burning. I experimented with parrots and other long-lived animals, but the results were always best with a human sacrifice. Their bones were piled in another corner of the attic, pushed into an untidy heap. In short, I needed a better solution, and the idea of walking off with a bank's money appealed to me. Outlaws have been robbing banks since they've existed. It's a classic get-rich-quick scheme, with hundreds of compelling stories of both successes and failures. I loved the tale of a good heist, and I was excited to conduct one of my own, especially since, with the help of my book, mine was guaranteed to be one of the successes. The plan was simple. In the interest of time, I used no again, and traded a useless memory for the knowledge of the best local target. One silver fish for the gray-suited man, and I knew everything I needed to know about Mr. Henry Amber, branch manager. I could have done my own investigation, but this was faster, and I was impatient. Henry was affable, Henry was well-liked, and Henry lived alone, which was very convenient for my purposes. My original plan was to go to his house in the dead of night, Don some dark clothes, skulk in the shadows, pick the lock, and ambush him in his sleep. But the more I thought about it, the more I spotted things that could go wrong in that plan. For starters, I didn't know how to pick locks. But the book held a solution on a page labeled Overlook. I looked in the mirror after casting it, and it was a strange sensation. I could see myself, obviously. I was right there. And yet, if you'd asked me to describe what I saw in the mirror, I would have described the room. I wouldn't have thought to mention me. I was irrelevant. I went to Henry's house in the waning daylight and sat on his porch swing, waiting for him to come home. When he pulled into the driveway, I waited for him to unlock the door and simply walked into the house behind him. He never noticed hanging up his coat and kicking off his shoes while I rolled back his rug and began to inscribe a circle on his floor. In a twist of irony, Henry was sitting down to dinner just as I finished the preparations for the consume ritual. At the end of it, Henry's dinner was still there, but Henry was gone. His life, his mind, were now mine, a second skin I could slip into. I had his memories, knew his proudest moments and his deepest shame, and more to the point, I knew exactly how to operate the bank vault. Dawn was approaching. I ate his dinner. It had gone cold, but I think he appreciated the gesture. Although I could act exactly like Henry, I neither looked nor sounded like him. Fortunately, the book had an answer for that too mimic. Ah, this book. It truly is a thing of beauty. Solutions for every occasion. And yes, there is a cost, but it's always both reasonable and manageable. For Overlook, it stole away a bit of my own attention. I've always been very aware of details, so I can spare what it took and more. 
Consume cut away a piece of how I define myself in order to store Henry's self. I expected to feel different, but I do not. It must have taken something minor, some small vanity or pride. Nothing I miss, nothing that wasn't worth what I gained. And for Mimic, the cost was even more negligible. I lost a fragment of my self-recognition. That moment when you see yourself in a mirror in a darkened hall and startle before you realize it's your reflection, those moments will always be just a touch longer for me. My hands look slightly alien when I catch them in the corners of my vision. It's a minor piece of paranoia, well worth the money I gained. Oh, I did pull off the heist. Mimic used the putty to form a mask for my face, one molded into a perfect likeness of Henry. Speaking through it distorted my voice into his as well. This final piece allowed me to waltz into the bank, bold as brass, and help myself to its money. Now, even the branch manager cannot simply walk out with bags of cash, unless he has a gun, which Henry did. He had never brought it to work, of course, but I did. I opened the bank for the morning. I let the first tellers in. Then I relocked the door, trained my handgun on the security guard, and demanded his weapon. He stared at me and asked if this was a joke, so I shot him. I'd never fired a gun before, neither had Henry. He had bought it for home defense and kept it unloaded in an upstairs closet. He was slightly afraid of it. The guard fell, blood spurting from a hole in his guts. He clasped his hands over it as if to hold it in, but the wall behind him was painted with the red spray and it was pooling at an alarming rate. Realizing it was futile, he fumbled for his holster so I walked over and shot him again, in the head. The tellers were screaming, but their screams quickly choked off into whimpers when I wheeled and turned the gun on them. Cora, Samuel, you don't have to die, I told them. I'm going to take the money and leave. Stay calm and you'll be fine. After I had Cora help me open the vault, I bound the tellers with tape. They let me do it. I think they believed me. The police came, of course. I opened a negotiation with them to stall for time. I'm sure they were doing the same thing with me, but whatever they planned to bring to bear was nothing compared to the secrets of my book. I used Mimic again, this time to make more than a mask. The jar had seemed never-ending but I was scraping the bottom by the time I had pulled enough out to make a mock, life-size, functioning replica of Henry Amber, branch manager. I gave it my clothes, handed it my gun, and wished it Godspeed. It grinned at me, a happy, guileless look. I used Overlook to walk out of the bank's front door, clad only in my underwear and pushing a cart with nearly $100,000 in cash. I walked directly past the police officers. I even congratulated them on their rapid response time. None of them so much as glanced in my direction. The news that night informed me that an attempted bank robbery had ended in tragedy. All of the hostages had been shot, and the robber had been killed by police. The Henry in my head whimpered a bit at this. Perhaps I can trade him to the gray-suited man. An entire person's life must be worth more than a single memory. I certainly don't need him anymore. I do need some more putty, though, and conveniently, I've also been needing to get rid of the bones in my attic. I believe I'll be spending the day with Meld. But first, to fetch something young. I am lost. I'm lost. I, I think things have gone terribly wrong. I found these notes, these writings, my discovery of the book. I don't remember any of them. I don't remember anything. I don't know what I've done that isn't recorded here. I don't know who I am. 
I have a wallet that says I'm Lazar Yordanov. I have a whispering voice in my head that says I'm Henry Amber. These notes say that neither of those are right. I don't know what the right answer is. The face in the mirror is withered, frightening, and unfamiliar. My body responds only reluctantly to my commands. I do not know what has happened since the bank. When I try to recollect, I feel as though the threads of my very self are being pulled apart, as if I'm a threadbare blanket being stretched to its limits. I think I've done terrible things to others and to myself. I have a cell phone I don't recognize, but it opens to my fingerprint. I'm in an unfamiliar house, but the keys to it are in my pocket. I feel comfortable in the attic, cluttered and morbid though it is. The floor is covered with symbols from the book. I feel at home among them. The book I recall. I know every symbol of it, every word. It's a language of elegance, a literary ballet. It is beautiful. So unlike this clunky, ill-designed language of day-to-day communication. It throbs in my mind, speaking to me of power, of life. It begs me to feed it, to release its abilities. I want to indulge it, just as it wants to indulge me. We're one. I hate it, I think. I cannot be sure. All I remember outside of this day, this moment, is a garden. A lovely, expansive garden, planted with carefully tended ornamental trees overlooking scenic paths which sweep gently around a placid lake. Black fish flit excitedly within the lake's waters. I catch an occasional glimpse of silver as well, an oddity among the dark inhabitants. A wolf sits on the far side of the lake, staring into the waters. He's tame, I think, but I occasionally catch him watching me, hungrily. Out of the corner of my eye, I sometimes think he looks like a man in a gray suit, crouched down and waiting. The sky is blue and cloudless. The temperature is perfect. The paths are paved with crushed fish bones. I've always lived in the garden, I think. I do not know how I came to the house with the cluttered, compelling attic. I think the book brought me. I think I've always had the book. I love its words, its spells. They sing with power. I can define reality causing others to believe whatever I wish. I can sight distant places, other times. I can see everything, touch everything. I am a god, and all the book demands is to be fed. I've given it all I can of myself. I am a husk, but this is not the end. Three circles mark the cover of the book, three interlocked shapes. My blood stains one, my tie to the book. The topmost circle is the book itself, its power, its love, and its hunger. But the third circle is vampiric. I'm not the first to find the book. I'm not the first to bond with it. And as I feed the book to use its power, part of every sacrifice I make is bled off by the maker of the third circle. His link corrupts my pure connection to the book, stealing away my power and diminishing the book's abilities. I cannot break the circle. I have tried, failed, and paid the price. I'm damaged and too weak to try again. But though I cannot break it, I'm not defeated. The wolf once whispered a secret to me, a story of creation. I thought the cost too high then. I do not think so now. 
my skin for the leather, my blood for the ink, a bone hollowed and sharpened for the quill. The pain is immeasurable, but I can restore this all. My copies are identical to the original book, with one key difference. It is my blood tied to the vampiric circle. I will be the one borrowing power from the future users. Or past. All times are one. Let the one before me steal what he will from me. I will steal from others. The book will make me whole, and I will make myself great. 1411-2027-0901 Negative 22-55-04 Negative 43 10-50-23-57 And three more lines of numbers. All the copies I could make. Sent where and when sight insisted they would be best received. My pupils, my progeny, my patsies. They will feed me, and I will feed the book. You've just been listening to The Dark Book by Micah Edwards. Micah Edwards graduated from William and Mary with a degree in English and no particular plans to use it. He now finds himself occupying various roles as an author, a comedian, and a database administrator, depending on the day of the week. He resides in Richmond, Virginia, the world's premier home of authors named Micah Edwards. You can find more of his work through Velux Books at www.veloxbooks.com. And that wraps up tonight's episode. I'd like to thank you all for joining me this evening, and I'd also like to thank Micah Edwards and Velux Books for providing tonight's story. We've got a lot of fun stuff lined up for you all in Season 10 of Horror Hill, So I hope to see you next week as we continue further on this cursed journey of ours. Until then, listeners, stay spooky. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Tonight's episode was hosted and narrated by yours truly, Eric Peabody. Original music provided by Eric Peabody and Nikki McSorley. Finalization by Eric Peabody and Craig Groshek. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? Email it to us at natalie at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your work considered for future production. Seeing as how we're all living in a technological nightmare of our own devising... I'll ask you to follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on social media and upvote, subscribe, and hit the bell notification icon if you're listening to this on YouTube. Not only will you have appeased the dark gods of cyberspace, but you'll be kept in the loop as we prepare more terrifying content. If you'd like access to uninterrupted horror, free of ads and these annoying bookend segments, might I recommend becoming a patron you'll get access to hundreds of episodes of this show, as well as everything from the other programs in the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights cabal. That means all of Otis Jiry's scary stories told in the dark, Drew Blood's dark tales, Paul J. McSorley's fear from the heartland, and more. It's a veritable smorgasbord of horrific delights. As for me personally, I'm on most social media as Viking Guitar or Viking Guitar Productions. I'm always on the lookout for new stories to narrate and new music projects to mix or master. If that's of interest to you, feel free to reach out and we can talk turkey. Also, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener... Your search is over. Yet, let it be known, 
You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.